Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is our Giro d'Italia Stage 16 Recap Pod and the Vuelta Espana Stage 1 Recap. Both supported by our partner, LeCole. Riding up through to the end of the season, LeCole and us, we've been so happy and um, I guess proud of all your support of the partnership with LeCole. And so it's not just going to be the Giro partnership with LeCole. It's continuing all through the Vuelta. Um, as you know, LeCole make performance cycling apparel. But read the Giro. If you want to get on a little thing that I haven't mentioned before, that they have a Giro Strava challenge, and that ends on the 23rd of October. And um, I'm pretty sure I'm like three days ahead of you guys and girls in Europe and America in Australia. But that's ending on the 23rd of October pretty soon. Uh, we've got the link to that in the show notes and the, and the uh, YouTube video description. And if you ride for four hours between now and then, I think you unlock like a 50-pound reward or the local currency equivalent um, for that you can put towards any Lacole kit. And you also get a chance to win a 2,500-pound bundle of Lacole kit, which is at least, I don't know, I don't know 25,000 Australian shillings. Um, so that's I thought I'd let you, you all know that as well but obviously this is a big pod for the lacole partnership which we'll get to uh for the giro in a second um but yeah just thought i let you all, all know that and we're all very happy and we, we hope you're happy as well moving on to giro stage 16 from udine to san daniele del friuli this is right near i think uh slovenian croatian border it's 229 k's and it's got uh, not that long climbs, just a 3.3k, 7.6% climb. And then they did three repetitions at the end of the Monte di Ragogna, 3Ks at 9%. And then the finale, Benji was talking about this on Twitter, how it was a uh, fake news climb. There was like a 20% pinch in it, then it flattened out. It was an irregular gradient. It was one of those climbs at the end. So definitely a day for breakaway and climbers in that breakaway or strongmen in that breakaway, not... Not a day for sprinters, but what break did form Benji? And maybe you don't, maybe you're not physically capable of reading out the entirety of this break. <laughs> well, early on, it was pretty unclear who was in the breakaway because this race already started this morning at around 10:30 my time, European or Central European time. Now, the issue is two riders attacked: Ruben Guerrero and Visconti. Those are the first two riders in the KOM standings. They started the stage with Visconti and the Blue Jersey with quite a large advantage of around 30 points. And there's plenty of points among the parkour. So if these two guys are in the break, you know that they're going to try and go for every single one of those KOM points. And they did that. On the first ascension, they fought for the top and Guerrero came out on top taking the initial KOM point. And we'd see clearly throughout this whole parkour that Guerrero was the best climber of the two. And Visconti tried hard to try and somewhat use the acceleration in a, in a very late sprint to try and beat Guerrero, but every single time Guerrero went early, it was Guerrero that actually ended up taking the points. But we'll dive into the upcoming KOM points as well, but first the other group that actually got away from the peloton, because those two riders got away. Then about a good few minutes later, we saw a few attacks in the peloton and certainly a whole portion of the peloton was just off in a breakaway in total 26 riders and those were four riders from Algezera La Mondial with as their main engines Vendrame and Bouchard most likely and we've got two riders from Androni, Bisolti and Sepeda, Boaro and Filine for Astana, Bataglin and Tratnik for Bahrain McLaren, Bataglin potentially the guy that could end up doing a hilly sprint, Tratnik maybe the person that they sent forward to try and kind of put Bataglin in a bit of a seat. Now, for the rest of the teams, Fabro, Poljanski for Bora, Tonelli Zana for 
Bardiani, I couldn't come up with the name for a second. Malechkin Roshkov for CCC, James Whelan for Evadication Fat. So a teammate for Guerrero. And then Oldani for Lotto Sudel. Not sure what he's doing up there. He's a bit of a sprinter, so didn't expect him to survive too much. An interesting name is Senegal Samitier, was up there 20 minutes back in GC. So whatever time he takes today could end up getting him closer and closer in GC. But his issue is he was before the stage 12 minutes behind the 14th rider in GC. So he had to cross 12 minutes to try and move up one place, which is kind of sad if you think about it. He's got a teammate, Rubio. That's a person that was sitting in Thomas de Gend's wheel in that stage that Thomas de Gend ended up letting Ghana go. Not really on purpose because he probably couldn't follow either. Pucho and Swift for Ineos. So two riders we've seen trying to get a stage win so far already in this Giro. And then three lone soldiers, Bernard, Conti, and Lorenzo Rota, also a figure that could help out Visconti. So we've got Guerrero with a teammate, Visconti for a teammate. This comes in play a bit later. This breakaway comes together after the first large climb once the 4G kicks in and we can actually see who's in the breakaway. A bit of a plateau section in between that and the next climb. And on that climb, we see a battle between those two KOM favorites. And like I said, Guerrero Best Climber takes the sprint really against Visconti because he's not only a climber, he can out-sprint the likes of Visconti here. So he's clearly not a slow man in acceleration either. And... Then we went to an intermediate sprint. I honestly don't remember who won that. Probably nobody gives a shit. And that's mainly because it only goes towards those breakaway classifications. I don't really follow them too much because I feel like they're under the radar a bit. Whenever the articles about the Giro come out, even on the Giro website, they always leave those out of the articles. And then I have to look on the actual stage page to find out what those classifications are like. So it, it feels like they're not promoting it enough to make it worth it. And yeah, that's why I'm not really following it either, I'm, I'm honestly saying. Now, the oddest part was on the next KOM point, Visconti versus Guerrero. We know that was a story. Visconti's moving forward with a teammate and suddenly Guerrero was gone. We saw from a helicopter view that Guerrero had some issues with his chain or his uh, his yeah his gear. It looked like he was stuck on the big ring. And he had to literally stand still and potentially switch bike. We don't know. Uh, it wasn't on camera or anything. But he was not there to sprint for the points. So that's nine points for Visconti that Guerrero doesn't have. So, yeah, a bit of a, a sad moment for Guerrero to be taken out of this sprint for KOM just by a mechanical. But I guess that's cycling. Visconti, again, called at the top, obvious. Then the action kind of continued and... We noticed that on the next KOM, which is part of that circuit that happens three times, we saw that Guerrero was already back in the group and Ruben Guerrero clearly wasn't going to let that happen to him again. And he attacked early with about two, two and a half kilometers to go on the climb. He just went. Visconti tried to follow for a bit, but clearly not as good of a, as a climber as Guerrero, but the rest of the front group didn't really bother. They were just sitting there somewhat behind. And Visconti was robbed by Guerrero. And Guerrero kept on riding. And it, it looked like he wasn't really going solely for the points because he just kept on attacking and attacking towards that KOM finish line. And you'd say, is he doing this because he wants to continue this effort afterwards? Or is he doing this because he just wants those KOM points and wants it securely because... I swear he had like 25 seconds at the top on Visconti, who crossed second. So I think there's a 30-point difference now between those riders. And afterwards, we saw that Guerrero had that bit of a gap in the descent. Do you think that Guerrero was trying to keep himself forward, or do you think that he was going for this KM points and just wanted to be certain of actually getting them? Uh, no, I think he was going forward for the stage is what I generally think with Guerrero, but he sometimes does some unusual things. Um, I'm not sure there's always a rhyme or reason for what, for what he's doing. Um, but the main point I remember was I think Boaro and Tratnik, Tratnik the Slovenian on Bahrain, McLaren, Boaro on Astana, they bridged across, I think, to Guerrero, and then the larger group was trying to bring them back and, and did so. That larger group had, I think, Ben O'Connor and Swift were notable names in there, and Batahin. And then Tratnik attacked again and got another break. 
or sort of another solo move off the front. So Guerrero, Guerrero had been brought back with them. And then, yeah, all come back together. Tratnik goes again. And he got a pretty decent gap. It was like 45, went up to 45 seconds. No one was really doing a very good job of closing it down. We got into the last, say, 30 kilometers or even even closer, maybe the base of the last climb, Monte de Ragonia, in the last, I think, 20 kilometers. And he was looking pretty good, Tratnik. He wasn't looking like he was tiring, etc. And the group behind was mainly, it wasn't a large group anymore. It was just uh, Swift, who was climbing unbelievably well for sort of rider he is, and Ben O'Connor. And the Australian for NTT attacked, I think, pretty close to the base of the Monte de Aragonia, the last ascension of it. And he ate into that gap so, so quickly into Tratnik. He... I think closed it down, yeah, the full 45 seconds on this climb and caught up to Tratnik just before the top. And I think this was a pivotal moment for O'Connor where he didn't unfortunately catch Tratnik early enough that he could attack him actually on this longer climb. And maybe Tratnik was holding a little bit back for the end. But once they actually finished the climb and got onto the descent, it wasn't, like it, it just wasn't likely that he was going to be able to drop Tratnik or possible at all, really. Uh, who he's a good time trial, is pretty powerful guy, um, compact guy. So yeah, it would have to be the last final climb, which wasn't as long as the Monte de Ragonia. But when he bridged across, and then it's these two guys, Tratnik, who's been out there for a fair while, O'Connor, the young climber, Australian for NTT, looking good. Who, who were you thinking was going to win the stage, Benji? Uh, it's a bit of a difficult question. I didn't know how the finish really looked in its place because we've got the profile. On the real profile, it, look, it, it basically looks like a flat finish. It's not a flat finish. It's got a 20% section in there. And it is kind of wavy in the sense that it goes up, goes down a tiny bit, then you've got a 20% wall, and then it goes down again. And then the last portion towards the line is again a bit of an uphill sprint. But I was thinking that O'Connor would need to drop Trotnik on the very steep 20% section. I think anybody that was watching was thinking the same. And I was expecting Trotnik to be able to hold on until afterwards. And then it would be a bit of a sprint of the dying swans, I would call it. And yeah, it didn't really get to that, did it? No, I think O'Connor... Oh, judging from the way this stage played out, I'm not sure he was going to win whatever happened, given that he hadn't dropped Tratnik earlier. But he he certainly approached this finale as if he was so much stronger than Tratnik that if he just rode the climb really hard, including not just the hard, the steep pinch, but the entirety of maybe the last 1,500 metres, he decided if he just rode that really hard, he would uh, be able to ride Tratnik straight off his wheel. And... That certainly, I mean, this ain't juniors anymore. Like, Tranik's a good, strong guy. I mean, he's not he's not the best climber in the world, but still consistent. Uh, he won a stage, I think, in uh, uh, Romandy. That was a prologue, I think. He won a, the Volta Limbo Classic, which I'm pretty sure has, like, a lot of punchy climbs in it. So, yeah, I'm sure O'Connor's better than... Uh, Tratnik on like a 3k 9% climb. We saw that in the last climb, but in a finish like this, I'm not sure he's actually. No, actually, I think we all can agree now that Tratnik's got way more punch than O'Connor. So it was a little bit unusual to see that, but maybe it didn't make too much of a difference anyway. And we got to that steep section. O'Connor's on the front. He's trying to basically drop Tratnik off the wheel. He's just been sitting, sitting, sitting. There's Swift, I think, trying to close it down. 50 seconds behind. He's got obviously. Tratnik's teammate back again, sitting on his wheel, and uh, Camille Malachi for CCC sitting there. Swift's closing it, and Tratnik chills, waits for like the last bit of the pinch. He sees O'Connor faltering a little bit, and just bang, he's gone, and puts seven seconds into O'Connor very, very quickly by the line. And in the Lacole kit, Jan Tratnik, for Slovenian. It's been a great year for Slovenian cycling, getting his biggest win of his career, a stage in the Giro d'Italia. I mean, I think it might be his second World Tour level win, but this is his, clearly his best ever win. He's got nine pro wins, a guy that was riding pro Conti at 20, I think 28 years old in 2018 at CCC Sprandi Polkovice. And 
yeah, only moved up to World Tour level with Bahrain in 2019. So very good story for Jan Tratnik. And, um, yeah, he deserved, certainly deserved to win today. He was probably the most aggressive guy um, in the break. But any, anything else from this stage notable, Benji, before we, we hustle on for the stage 17 preview? I would honestly say so because we had the GC favourites after that. And yep. on the last yep. climb... Sorry, in my defence, in my defence, GC guys let the break go to 15 minutes today and I forgot the GC guys even existed in this stage. <laughs> um so, okay, but yep, my bad, Benji, go ahead. <laughs> so in the last portion, the last climb, we saw that the Koenig was moving up, and the Koenig was moving up with quite a effort as we saw multiple people drop and kept on dropping in that elite group, I'd call it, because it wasn't the peloton anymore. The likes of Sagan was dropped there, so if Bora went for Sagan today, it would obviously not have worked. We've spoken about it before in... Well, the last stage recap, we previewed this one shortly and we said that. But surrounding this stage, I would still say that Almeida looked like he was going to try something. And at a certain point, he only had one teammate left. I think it was Peter Serida was really pushing it on that final big climb. And after that, they kept on pacing it slowly, but surely towards the finish line. But they weren't done because on that last steep pinchy section, Almeida attacked and... Who was first to respond? It was Calderon in his wheel. We saw that Fulsang was in third position and Nibali was in fourth position. And suddenly Fulsang started dropping through the group and Fulsang dropped through the group. He didn't actually lose contact there from the group, but he didn't look good on a punchy finish. Not at the speed or acceleration that Almeida was going on. Almeida is by far, well, clearly the best puncher in the GC group at this moment in this Giro watching this stage. And that was very noticeable because not only did Fulsang fall through the group, Nibali went past Fulsang, and then Calderman started suffering, and Calderman actually lost the grip with Almeida and was a solid four seconds behind at a certain point in the last kilometer somewhere. And at that point, Nibali had to try and close it down, had to try and get past Calderman. He clearly couldn't follow Almeida either. He was the stronger one compared to Calderman and compared to Fulsang, but Newly could not close it down, stronger than the last few times we've seen him this year. So it's relatively promising for the third week for me personally. But it was only a bit later that Jai Hindley in the last 300 meters was able to get past everybody and start punching it on the front of that group. I don't know why Hindley waited so long to get to the front of the group because he clearly saw that the gap was opening up and he clearly had the energy looking at it. So he went to the front, started trying to close the gap to Almeida. In the end, Almeida crosses the line two seconds ahead of Hindley, Nibali, and the rest of the group. The only people that lost time were the likes of Amaznada and such. Ulisi wasn't able to follow the group, so clearly a tiny bit too hard for the likes of him. And to be honest, there's no stage win for the taking, so why would he try to follow anyway? And Nibali looking stronger than before, and honestly... Yeah, I thought Nibali looked really good. I was alarmed, actually, at how good he looked. Better than Kelderman, I thought. And maybe if he had someone dragging him over to Almeida, he would have been pretty much close to on Almeida's wheel. And this is a finish that doesn't suit him. So, yeah, Nibali looking good. And that dovetails nicely into a stage where it could be one for Nibali if he does have good legs to put a lot of pressure on Almeida and Sunweb. And and, Alme- and um, Hindley, of course. So, yeah, Almeida, Kelderman and Hindley, in the top three on GC. But this is stage 17 starting in Bassano del Grappa. That's at the base of Monte Grappa. They don't do that climb. It's where I think Coal have their factory that they own, uh, by the way. Just a side anecdote for this stage. It's 204 kilometers long, finishing in Madonna di Campiglio. And it's got some beastly climbs. Three category ones, which are the equivalent of HC climbs in the Tour de France. The I think Forcella Valbona, 21.4 k's at 6.7%. Long descent, short valley, Monte, Bondone, 20.5 k's at 6.5%. Then another Rolly Valley, first intermediate sprint of the day. I don't think tomorrow will be collecting that. Next climb, Category 3, just a little Cat 3, 10.5 k's at 5.8% then a false flat uphill drag, and then they do the Madonna di Campiglio 12Ks at 6%. Now, just want to check the uh, 
whether there's any steep sections in there. These climbs are pretty undulating, particularly the Monte Bondone. That's got some nasty caves in 13, 14, 15. And if I had to guess where, if Nibali was going for a long ranger, I'd probably pick um, somewhere in the midpoint of the Bondone. I'm not sure he might have the legs for that there. He might not. Um, otherwise, if they get to the Mondona di Campiglio, it's... It's not that bad, to be honest. And the Paso Durone is not that bad either. Like the Campiglio gets really easy at the end. So Bondone midsection or last third looks like it could be a half-decent launch pad if someone wants to do something crazy, which some of these riders need to do if they actually want to win this this Giro. But uh, who's your pick for tomorrow, Benji, is another breakaway because no one's going to be bothered controlling the race at all? Whew, good question. I am going to go ahead and... Hmm... I am saying Attila Walter because I said it last time for a mountain stage. He didn't go into the break, so I'm going to say him in the mountain stage until he is in the breakaway. That's a pretty bad tactic, but I'm hoping that he decides to be in the breakaway because let's be honest, he is supposed to be a climbing talent. He clearly has the talent. He should use it because he's in top 25 in GC somewhere. So I would have expected him to be in more breakaway so far and I've got the same thing about Aurélien Parépeintre. I've got the same feeling there that he's got the talent. He's also in top 25 in GC. So they are clearly following the GC group for some reason. And I'm not sure, but I don't think they're doing it for top 25 in GC. But it looks like they are at the moment because they're not really doing anything for the actual GC. Now, if they can change that, they could go into the breakaway. They could try and take back seven, eight minutes in a mountain stage. And they could do what Bensteiner did last year in the, was it the Tour de France or the Vuelta? Don't know. Might be the Vuelta. And take back time like that. Same with Hagen, how he did that. So I believe that those two riders are very eligible to try and take back time in breakaways. Same thing that Summitier did today. I think Summitier today bridged maybe one position only, to be honest. But let's take a look to be sure. He's 10 minutes back, but he's gained a lot of time back. He indeed gained back like 10 minutes, but he's still on the same position. Didn't even pass the likes of Bensteiner. <laughs> so uh, that's a bit of a bummer for the lad, but he's now close to Rand. Could try it again on one of the next days. And if he gets another five minutes, the man is accidentally in the top 12 of GC. So these are the likes of moves that I expect the party Pantra to do. Attila Walter is getting harder because he's dropping in GC. He's now on 36 minutes, which he'd have to get back 26 minutes to get in top 15, which is rather unlikely. So... All in all, those are my two picks, Pantra or Attila Walter for this stage. I'm going with Ilnor Zakarin. I think he can win this stage. Just if he does well enough, I think he's a good enough climber. Um, I'm not sure if he's crashed or anything recently if, or if that's affecting him. Um, but yeah, I think him or Ruben Guerrero, to be honest. Like Ruben Guerrero is probably one of the best climbers in the race. He's going to want to get in the break again. So I wouldn't be surprised if Ruben Guerrero won either. But I'm going with Zakarin. And if it was out of the GC group, I would go with Vincenzo Nibali if there's no break. I think Nibali could win this stage as well. I agree that he has a possibility for it, but the annoying part is that looking at the profile... It's it's the sequencing of the climbs is the problem and how difficult they are. That's true, but I feel like the Bondone is not close enough to the final climb and that Favcat Durone is not going to make the big difference in the in the plateau section for me. So I find it hard to see Bondone as a real jumping board yet, but I guess we'll have to find out tomorrow because we're not wizards, so we can't actually guess that either. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we've got to say, uh, Fernando Gaviria tested positive for COVID today and an Asia du Le Mondial staff member, I think, Benji, uh, or rider. can't remember. I think it was just Gaviria. No, it was just staff member, sorry. Gaviria obviously had COVID in March and uh, when he was back in UAE, I think, for the UAE tour. And he's the only rider that's tested positive. Now, I've got my view on it. I think it's a bit early to be saying he's one of the very, very rare people to be reinfected with COVID in the world. I think that's unlikely because if there was COVID rampant in the peloton or he was exposed to it, then why would he be the only rider testing positive? for it on this rest day so i think it's probably more i think it's more likely again not a scientist but i think it's more likely that he's got it's just a false not a 
not a false positive or you're still shedding the virus or something like that. We've seen that sort of thing's been happening in Australia as well. Or he's one of the very, un- very, very unlucky people who has contracted it again. Uh, so he's obviously pulled out, but otherwise the zero, obviously thank you, thanks to Education First, sending that letter to the UCI. Without them sending that letter, um, the UCI and RCS wouldn't have taken COVID seriously and maybe we would have had way more positive tests. So their letter obviously made a really big difference. Moving on, I think, to the Vuelta España stage one. Um, I'm so excited about this Vuelta. It was <laughs> it already delivered. Um, stage one from Irun to Arate. We just did the Beastly Vuelta preview podcast. If you haven't listened to that, it's still relevant. I mean, everything except stage one is pretty relevant. Or maybe our GC picks aren't anymore. <laughs> Irun to Arate Ibar. 173Ks, flat for the first half. Uh, gentle climb, a couple of cat threes, five and a half Ks, four percent, etc. Then, then the, the stage really started. Two main climbs, Alto de El Guetta, I think, uh, two point nine Ks at eight and a half, eight point eight percent. That's in the last twenty five kilometers, and then or twenty kilometers descent. No flat after that point. Straight into the Alto de Arate, which is a hard climb, five Ks at eight and a half percent. I think the climbing record is like ten and a half, eleven minutes. Um, from back in the day, maybe Jalabert or someone. Um, Horn has done a pretty good time there as well. And it's not actually a hilltop finish. They descend in the last 800 metres. And we said this on the preview podcast, actually, that that's why I picked Carapaz for this stage because I was like, well, if it was straight uphill, I'd pick Roglic. But it's a bit of a downhill section, etc. Maybe they group together. Um, but, yeah, it was an interesting profile. They use it in Tour of Basque Country, I think, and uh, it's usually the GC men because there's some steep sections in there. Benji said this is certainly a uh, fake news climb, but who went into the break, Benji? It was as you predicted. Benji said it exactly in the preview pod. It's a do- it was going to be a doom break because the GC guys are just way too itchy on a stage one of a Grand Tour. Yes, but the riders in it were pretty strong riders, though. We saw an early attack by. The TGV of Mont Clément—that's I just ruined his nickname. The, the TGV of Clément Ferrand—that's how you say it. <laughs> uh, the rest of the group was Zutelin, Jorgi, and then we also saw two riders bridge up, and that was the likes of Ball and Wellens. Not Case Ball, yet a Ball rider for Burgos BH that I think was fighting with his teammate Madrazo and a Cofidis rider or something for a victory last year on Javalambre, Alto Javalambre in Vuelta. So. I remember these guys. These guys are uh, in my head because Yetzibol also streams, live streams his Zwift sessions sometimes. And um, yeah, that was a curious thing to watch. Anyway, five-man breakaway group. Let's continue about that. Bolin Wellens bridged up quite easily, but yeah, nothing really happened throughout the stage itself except for some chaos in the peloton when we had crashes. And unfortunately, my pick for GC, Daniel Martinez, hit the ground Pretty early on on the stage, didn't look too great. Took a really while. Uh, it took a really long time to get back to the group, and because of that, I'm starting to really doubt whether he's going to do anything for GC at all. Because yeah, it didn't really help him at the end of the stage either. It looked. Anyway, we also saw some other crashes. Elon von Wilder is out of the Vuelta. He's one of the first abandonments. Unfortunately, was looking forward to see what he can do. Yes, von Wilder was a crash. Frank was not a crash. He was feeling ill the last few days and was still taking to the Vuelta, which I still don't know why. If someone's ill in a period like 2020, I wouldn't put him in a Grand Tour. That's my personal opinion. Obviously, the guy technically tested negative, so on paper, he's allowed to ride this Vuelta, but I just feel like it's a, a bad decision to do that in these days. And we're being consistent. We said the same thing about Mulberger uh, as well. We were like, Yes, the minute he was feeling unwell, you should, they should have pulled him out. So we're, we've been consistent about that throughout all the racing. But yeah, sorry, go on, Benji. Yeah, in the in the breakaway, like the KOM points were blatantly one guy. I said blatantly once again, I should stop that. Who were won by one guy, Quentin Jorigui. He went for the KOM points, took every single one of them, and is now the KOM leader for tomorrow, I think. I don't actually know because... It depends how many points the last few climbs of the day give. So I'm going to keep on talking for a single second. There we go. And I can tell you that Jorge did not have enough points to actually 
get the KOM jersey today to my utter surprise because the last two climbs in this stage actually ended up giving more for that. And I'll throw it to you after this. We saw that Ineos was moving up and being the team that wanted to really make something of this stage. So for the likes of Carapaz, and they surely tried. Carapaz is clearly the Ineos GC leader. Uh, we said that on the preview, and I think most people we respect around the traps, Mihai, Flamme Rouge, etc. You know, they we didn't think Froome was capable of contesting GC here. Um, and I thought he was going to lose time today. Me and Benji thought he was going to lose like fifteen to twenty seconds. So we were still we were still optimists. But Amador uh, <laughs> on Ineos, I think Ineos got a still got a pretty strong squad here. Like they still have a good, well rounded team. But they were riding pretty hard early with uh, Amador and Dylan Van Baal on this the first of the the main two climbs close to the finish, and they dropped for him. And he seemed to do the thing he did in Dauphiné where he rides, he sort of drops before he's fully blown up and he rides his own tempo and he kind of got back to the group a little bit, but then they accelerate and et cetera. And unfortunately for him, I mean, Ineos did a really good job. They got Carapaz in good position at the front. Jumbo Visma were like mid-pack. Movistar were present. Movistar had also helped bring the breakaway back a lot today. I think Movistar actually... We, 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 I've got to be honest, straight up and already say it, we slept on Movistar and um, and Mars a little bit too much. I think in the preview podcast, I was worried. I, I sort of called that out at the end of that long pod. And, um, I mean, it's funny to say that, sleeping on Movistar, but I think Mars is strong and, and Movistar are strong and got to be taken pretty seriously. Uh, so they were helping bring back the breakaway with Ineos and Jumbo Visma today. Um, Vinance, who's Tom Dumoulin's father, I'm pretty sure. So Ineos get over the top of that climb. They've got Carapaz in the wheel. It's all looking good, except for him has been dropped. And on the descent, he wasn't really able to catch back up. He realises he's not going to catch up because he's not got that descending confidence anymore and he sort of sits up. So that was that. Carapaz was left in with two Colombians, Brandon Rivera and Ivan Sosa, who we mentioned before. Pure climbers, particularly Ivan Sosa, is like the, the textbook definition of a pure climber. They used Rivera first, and on this last climb, they were talking it. Alto de Arate, they were going hard, but the problem is they were going early. And driving it really hard was Rivera. He pulls off. He's done Sosa pulled for as long as possible, but as I said, he's not. he's just not that good. Like He looks like a pure climber, but he's like a pure climber that's not actually one of the best pure climbers, um, in my view at least. Uh, you compare him to like Sepp Kuz, he's not near that level, uh, in my view. But he did all right, he did a fine job for Carapaz, and then Carapaz was kind of left on his own, and Carapaz knew this was coming, there was still like 3Ks or 2Ks left in the climb, and then it became a game of cat and mouse. And Jumbo Visma did what they didn't do throughout the, entire, the entirety of the Tour de France, they did something different, and they attacked with Sepp Kuss. We've been begging for it um, for ages. And were you surprised to see that so early, Benji? I mean, it wasn't like, this is not the biggest out-of-the-box thinking I've ever seen attacking with him, but were you surprised they did try something different so early? I was mostly glad they did because this is promising towards the mountain stages. And if they do it here on a stage where it potentially isn't as risky, I totally get it. But I hope that they pull this through and also do it on the mountain stages because Gus can clearly follow the better guys here and if this is on a real mountain stage that certainly fits him better in my honest opinion then I believe that he's going to be able to really make something happen we see that their team as a whole looks weaker though so I'm not sure that they have the capability to have the same kind of train strategy that they had at the Tour de France I think Vinod was a really big influence there obviously Hesink is still here looked pretty decent but to be honest he had to get off the back of that group quite quite quickly as well. I just want to pick in and say that Michael Woods, one of the people that we probably had as a potential opportunist on this stage, I didn't have him as my pick, nor did I think you had him as your pick, but he actually fell in the descent just before the last climb, and he finished today on 18 minutes, so Woods will not be going for GC, that's for sure, so most likely he's going to try and get back hopefully without any injuries hopefully the x-rays point that out and then he can 
turn back for a potential stage win, but you can continue on with the GC battle. Yeah, so Kuz attacking, brought back. Carapaz was actually the man bringing him back, so I think Carapaz, yeah, he, he missed out not having teammates to bring back the Kuz attack. He had to bring back Kuz because, as you, you know, he's a legitimate GC threat. Brings him back, nothing really happens. I don't think anyone counters except maybe uh, Hugh Carthy. It was Hugh Carthy, not Mike Woods, right? And he was he attacked, and again, Carapaz was right there. Dan Martin was in this group. Chavez was looking okay. Groshart in the bridge back. But we also got to say a notable absentee was Tom Dumoulin. So you've got Roglic in this group with Koos, and already Dumoulin's off the back. Now, he hadn't really been pulling, so... I guess he just wasn't good enough today. But then a weird thing happened. I think Koos attacked again, but it was more of a testing attack, this one. He got brought back again, and Jumbo Visma just decided for the last 2Ks or 1,500 metres of this climb, with Dumoulin off the back, they just set tempo with uh, Sepp Koos again, with this whole large group, with all the other GC contenders, Mars, Carapaz. Um, that's pretty much it. <laughs> That's pretty much the only other GC contenders. <laughs> Everybody's gone. Yeah, everyone else is literally gone already. Vlasov, F. <laughs> Jesus, Vlasov Martinez. Wow. Okay, yeah. So, but still, Mars and Carapaz are here. And then Dumoulin's like, they're, they're distancing him. So I thought I thought it would have made sense for Roglic to counter over after the, the last Coos attack. I'm not sure anyone would have been able to bring him back. He, he obviously had good legs. But anyway, they... It wasn't a major stuff up, but it's interesting to see again. They have, through their own ha- actions, they have put 51 seconds into Dumoulin today, and he's lost 51 seconds to Mars and Carapaz. So similar sort of thing to stage 18 and you know, stage eight in the Tour de France. We'll see if that comes back to bite them later. Probably not. But anyway, Kuz sets tempo. Kuz pulls off. Roglic has about. 300 metres left in the climb before this 850 metre 1k descent and Roglic does what he does and he just bangs it. I've got a cold take for everybody. If your climbing threshold is good enough that you pretty much can't get dropped by anyone in the world on a climb except for uh, Tarek Pogacar on his best ever day and you then also have probably when you do a one-minute anaerobic dump at the end of those climbs, no one can hold your wheel. You can win a lot of stages. <laughs> that's why <laughs> Roglic, that's my cold take of the day. That's why Roglic wins a lot of races. And yeah, no one could get to his wheel. I think that being said, I think Carapaz could have got there. I think he I think he could have, maybe on the descent as well, uh, in the finale, like the right in the last 200 metres. But Mars did this thing. Uh, you see it all the time. Mars was like, I'm closing it, I'm closing it. One second and blocks Carapaz whilst Roglic is like steaming up the road. One second later, Mars is like, oh shit, flicks his elbow, I can't close it. Meanwhile, like the gap is, the elastic's probably snapped and Carapaz has to close it all on his own. So yeah, Roglic goes into the descent. It's really twisty chicane. Like it's like the Strato descent in like the last 150 meters, but for 800 meters, not on cobbles, obviously. So positioning is key and it's really hard to bring anyone back. And yeah, even though Carapaz was one second behind Roglic, it's it's really hard to make up that one second in that time. So he, yeah, Roglic takes the stage win with a well-timed attack and then that quick descent. And it seemed like he just knew how the stage profile worked better than the other riders. That being said, I think Carapaz was actually the strongest rider in the stage. He brought back moves from Carthy, Coos twice. He brought the Roglic move back to within one second on the line and was looking really strong uh, and didn't have a stronger teammate. So I think Carapaz was, I think he's looking really good and uh, I think he's one of the strong, he's, he's going to be, clearly be Roglic's biggest threat for this uh, this Vuelta and maybe Enric Mars who looked good to a close third. But Roglic, double Slovenian victory, Giro, now Vuelta stage one, already into the red jersey. Heavy lies that red jersey. Will it be too heavy for him? Five seconds now behind is Carapaz because of the bonus seconds. Third is Dan Martin on GC because he came third on the stage. Fourth, Esteban Chavez. Fifth, Groschartner. He's running for GC apparently. Enric Mars, sixth. Hugh Carthy, seventh. Sepp Kuss, eighth. 
Bennett Knights, and then we move. Then there's like a proper sorry. There's like a fifty second gap to Bennett and Co. And then there was that group of like Bennett had Valverde, Hessing, Izaguirre, and yeah, they did a cruise. Dumoulin, Formolo, Guillaume Martin. They all lost fifty one about fifty one seconds today. Uh, so that's something to bear in mind with Tom Dumoulin. But am I? Do you think I'm underrating Roglic's performance today, Benji, and overrating what you what I saw from Carapaz? It's really hard to judge Roglic on the stage that he's in because at the start of the Tour de France, we were very unclear on whether the whole story about the Dauphiné crash and back problems was real because for the first portion of the race and basically the entire Tour de France, except for Côte de la Lose, we saw no real attack of Roglic outside of the last 500 meters or something. So it was not really easy to guess whether he's in a, a good shape or anything. Today he was hanging at the back of the group every single second on that last ascension, except for the time that he started attacking on top of the climb. So not even really on an uphill section, it was more on a descent actually that he made that move, which to me suggests that either he wasn't able to get away from that group or he's waiting a bit and seeing how the competition is for the upcoming days because this is only stage one. It doesn't feel like it, but this is stage one of a Grand Tour, and we've seen GC action with Roglic in the red jersey at the end of the day. Now, I do want to shed a light on Groschartner because he was my pick for today, and I'm hella proud of him, the, uh, outside of not winning, obviously. <laughs> but I saw that he wasn't able to really follow on the steeper sections of the climb, but had the... I'm not sure dexterity is the word for it, but he had the strength to keep on going, and he caught up on a moment where the front group was slowing down a tiny bit. So despite him being in that group and Chavez being pretty close, I don't think that those two riders are on the level of climbing as the riders that are at the front because those were the riders that were able to follow any attack on the climb. So clearly at the moment we have, as the favorites of this La Vuelta, after stage one, Roglic, who is currently in red, Richard Carapaz, that is for me D1v1 of this. And if you look at the rest of the results, then I'd say then Martin is most likely not going to be avidly competing with those two on the bigger mountain stages, but he bloody well did it today. The man's third on a stage that, let's be honest, some people might have already said that Dan Martin was washed a few months back and he was injured in the Tour de France. We didn't really see what came out of that because of it. But he's clearly on a good level right now, and if he can sustain that in the mountains, then he could compete for a decent GC. I just don't see it happening on the big mountains, but I guess that's just my personal insight and personal thoughts at the moment. In that group, Enric Maas is for me the third guy in the battle at the moment. So Roglic, Carapaz, and Enric Maas. Hugh Carthy, I'm surprised that he was up there, generally. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we know that Martinez was supposed to be the leader here, hands down. Martinez crashes, they switch around the plan. Perhaps Carfi was also co-leader. We don't know their behind-the-scenes story, but Carfi's clearly on a level that is decent and that can be sustained because I feel like he is a better climber, for example, on the real mountains than Dan Martin. So I think that Hugh Carfi could be a really surprising top five, but the issue is we still got that time trial of 33 kilometers. Carfi's not an amazing time trialist, so... I believe that that might be his weakness, but then again, there's only one time trial. Do you think that Kuss is clearly riding for Roglic since he's lost 10 seconds no. today, or do you think he blew no. himself up a bit too much himself? I just don't know what Jumbo Visma were doing with Kuss uh, pulling. Didn't really make much sense to me. I think they're still, they're still. I reckon Kuss going to probably end up third on GC somehow, uh, high up on GC, just because the way this welter is going to pan out. Notable people who are already out of GC, obviously Martinez, Woods, Vlasov is obviously still sick. David Godot lost two and a half minutes today, so you ain't winning the Vuelta if you lose two and a half minutes on this stage. He was supposed to be riding GC. Mark Soler lost a minute and 18. That's kind of surprising. Davide Formolo, he wasn't able to hang with them on this climb. I, I thought he could have hung with them on this climb, to be honest. Um, a little bit surprising to me. George Bennett lost time. And Froome and Pino, I think, lost like 11 minutes. So they're already out of GC, and it's just really, it is those. I think Dan Martin, we've got to take seriously, and I think he's going to win a stage. Again, I think 
if Dan Martin wasn't riding GC and if he deliberately lost like 30 minutes tomorrow somehow, I think he'd win like three stages if he got in the break. But he's going to be too close on GC and then he's just really good. But Roberts is much better or just a bit better at the things he's really good at, um, like the finishes like today. But Dan Martin, hats off to him. We mentioned in the preview, not a man to be slept on given that he his back injuries kind of that hampered him in the tour. So, yeah. Chavez, I don't really expect too much from him. But tomorrow's stage from Pamplona to Leckenbury, or Berry, it's another mountain stage. Well, another hilly stage at least. Probably mountains a bit strong. 151Ks, Cat 3, Puerto de Guilano, 7.2Ks at 5% in the first 30Ks. Then they do Puerto de Abasa, 7Ks at 5.7% with about 90Ks into the stage. Plateaus, short descent, false flat downhills, and then the Alto de San Miguel de Aralá, 9.5Ks at 7.9%. Now, I can't even remember already, Benji, who <laughs> we um, picked for tomorrow's stage. I can remember who I picked. I picked Dion Smith, and uh, I'm a little bit worried about that old pick. It feels <laughs> reminding me of uh, my DeMar pick in that, <laughs> in that stage. <laughs> Because, but then again, it depends on how they ride. It depends on how the GC teams ride it, right? Because if Jumbo Visma don't have the appetite to do anything tomorrow and Carapaz and Ineos take it off, then maybe they're all chilling and he gets over it. Maybe he doesn't. So, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going with, I'm going to hedge my bets and go with, um, who's the other Australian on the, on Mitch and Scott, who I said was going to win every stage. Yeah, I'm going with I'm going with Robert Stanard. The thing is, we were also talking about Mohoric for the stage, but the issue is that Mohoric climbed so well today that he was better than Wout Pools and had to drag Wout Pools to the line and only is on 151 in GC on the same time as Sosa. So he's clearly having a good day. Champoussin on the same time. And therefore, I'm kind of pointing at a few riders that clearly overperform, not, not necessarily overperforming. Champoussin is a rider that has done a lot. U23 championships, top three somewhere, if I recall correctly. And also, Bajoli was great today, 51 seconds down. Does that prove something for the next stage? For me, it proves that they might not win it because I believe that this stage is most likely for GC. No, for breakaway, sorry. <laughs> Very big difference. Although, oh, it's, it's only a 151k stage though, so that's what makes me doubt a bit, but... You've got that ascension. It's 9.5 kilometers, 7.9 percentage. It has steep sections on it, but it's relatively the same gradient towards the top. It's not like there's a descent in the middle and then it's 20% or anything. It doesn't work like that. It's not a fake news climb. But then we've got a descent of, yeah, that 50 kilometer descent, 15 kilometer descent, not 50. Do you feel like that descent is going to kill the breakaway chances or keep it? Because you're going for a breakaway. I'm not sure it is going to be that because whoever attacks on the last climb would be expected to be able to make it to the line and not really lose too much time because of that descent. So potentially the likes of Roglic might still try something. He knows that he's in good form. They said they were going to ride more aggressively. And with a guy like Martin Wainons, like you said, Tom Dumoulin's dad, he's most likely going to be decent at keeping the gap to the breakaway at three minutes, four minutes. And if it's four minutes at that last climb with the power we've seen from Ineos, the power we've seen from wow, halfway jumbo, I wouldn't say that. They were overly convincing today, but they still had Kaz up there. They still had Roglic up there. So don't you think that GC will somewhat try to keep it under control and try something? Since it's also the last race of the season, there's 18 stages. But as we know, in this period, every single one could be the last. I think they'll control, but I'm not sure they'll light it up to the extent they did today. Um, I'd be surprised if they dialed it up to the same extent. Like the Alto de Arate is harder than the climbs, the last climb we have tomorrow. And we had two climbs in quick succession today. We had also like crosswind on the climbs and the descent. So that's why I don't care if it's from a break or the GC groups. I'm going with Robert Stannard uh, with my backup being my preview pick, Dion Smith. Okay, I had Aramburu for this one, I think, or I switched him around at the end for Bajoli. <laughs> but the issue is that Aramburu dropped at the uh, start of the last climb. So 
I think start of the second last climb even. So Aramburu wasn't really going to do it. And I don't know whether it's dropping on purpose to lose time. I think he lost a solid amount of time, 12 minutes. He ended up in a group with Madrazo and such. I think we're going to see mainly teams like Burgos having someone in the breakaway every single day. Madrazo could be the one for tomorrow as well. Maybe Alex Molinar, but I think if it really comes down to a breakaway, I think that Ramburu might have trouble winning it. So, yeah, who the hell will win from the breakaway? I'm going to go for a wild one then because I just don't really know yet. And therefore, I'll go for Alexander Yabushenko or Magnus Kort Nielsen. I think I'll go with Yabushenko. Kort Nielsen might be too hard on those steep sections. So, Yabushenko is my breakaway pick. I hope he pops out. At the top, he's got a bit of a, a sprint at the end. By the way, very important detail, Mareshko is still in the race, and he was not the worst rider in it, and he only lost 16 minutes. Actually, there's another DNF. Alexander Genier is also DNF in the race. Just wanted to give it that which uh, I don't know why at the moment. Right, so that's all from the Vuelta. Stage 2 tomorrow, it looks to be another interesting one, and stage 17 of the Giro, I think, is going to be one you should tune in for. Hopefully it'll be, I think, more interesting than today, GC-wise. Another race that was today was, I think, the last Women's World Tour race of the season, a one-day race, one of my favourite on the calendar. Um, it's Driedaxa Brugge de Pan, near where Benji probably goes past his house, and it's pancake flat. Almost, Really? Okay, fair enough. 155Ks. I'm not sure if there's cobbles in this one or not. I, I don't think so. Um, half of... West Flanders seems to be cobbled to me, but it's all about <laughs> it's all about the wind in this race. It's all about weather. And if you look at where this race goes to, it goes to the the, the pan is on the coast. And there were vias today, trust me. When I tuned in with 25Ks to go, because there wasn't much live coverage before before then. I was struggling to find live coverage uh, before then. It was like those Hen Vavelham in 2015. There was like five echelons split across the road. Favourites for the race were Lotte Kopecky, Belgian national champion of the Lotto Sudal, Bulls Dorman's rider, Julian Dorman, well, the whole Bulls Dorman's team <laughs> got in the got in the uh, the final the first echelon, the whole Bulls team, Julian Dor, Chantal Vandenbroek Black eventually, Diedrichsen, Majerus, who I think is Luxembourg national champ, Amy Peters and Lonica Uniken. Um yeah, they were <laughs> very, very strong today. Alice Barnes, Hannah Barnes, they're pretty strong as well on Canyon Shram, um, as well as Rihanna Marcus has actually looked really good at the end of this season. Uh, Grace Brown, Sarah Roy, they've been doing well in the Cobble Classics. Oh, well, Brown has, and Roy did well at Hanfavelhem. And Sunweb probably had the second strongest team and the best sprinter in the race, Suzanne Anderson, Alison Jackson, uh, Pfeiffer, Georgie, Francesca Koch, and Julia Soak. And they're running, obviously, for their sprinter, Lorena Weebs, who's yeah best sprinter in the world. So, yeah, and then, obviously, sorry, Longa Borghini, who I'm pretty sure has raced, like, literally every women's race in this calendar. She must be so tired. And I think Audrey Cordon Rigaud, the French national champ, on trek, I think she might have pulled out of the race or something, and she was like, I'm cooked, I'm done. And, obviously, other name, last name, Lisa Brenauer, German national champion, sort of TT-style rider for Kera Tizit WNT Pro Cycling. But there were these echelons, and in this front group was a massive group of pretty much the whole Sunweb team and the whole Bulls team minus Chantal van der Broek Black. And they got their sprinters there, Julian Dor and um, Lorena Weebs. They've also got Lotte Kopecky there. And Sunweb, I think, made... A complete meal of this finale. They've got, I think, Rihanna, Rihanna uh, Marcus is trying to bridge back. Chantal Vandenbroek Black's on her wheel. They're like 30 seconds behind, 20 seconds behind. And bulls were pulling. There, Everyone was pulling really well. Like all the riders were pulling, not just the bulls or Sunweb riders. And then Sunweb kind of stopped pulling. And it was clear that Sunweb decided their strategy in the last 15Ks was going to be we're going to use our numerical advantage to close down any and all attacks. And then that'll get us to the line and then we'll lead out Lorena Veebs and then win. It didn't, it didn't make sense to me. I thought if they'd 
kept cooperating, kept working really well. Bulls probably would have helped them as well because they got Julianne Dor there who, yeah, she can win a sprint. And Lotta Kopecky, she was working happily. Mitchell Scott with Sarah Roy was pulling through. Ellen Van Dyke for Trek and Longo Borghini. Well, Van Dyke was certainly working, um, as well as some of the smaller riders like uh, Balsamo for Valkar. Made no sense to me what Sunweb were doing. It just seemed like they were making it more difficult for themselves. And that's exactly what happened. Bulls were like, well, fuck this, and just started attacking them with legit riders. You know, Amy Peters, um, I think other riders like Unikin. I think if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, she attacked uh, pretty shortly after. They were just rolling Sunweb. Marjorie, sorry, she attacked a couple of times. She was a sacrificial lamb. Chantal Vandenbroek Black, because they slowed down so much, she just won Tour of Flanders. She bridged across to them on Marcus wheel and immediately attacked them. And, yeah, it just didn't make sense to me. And then there were all, all the Sunweb riders were burning their matches that way. They were lucky that Suzanne Anderson was pretty strong today. Um, I think she kind of saved Lorena Weaves a little bit as well as Alison Jackson. Um, she makes pretty funny TikToks as well, I think. She, Canadian, but yeah, she was really strong and did a good job. But coming into the finale, it was Van Dyke attacking late, brought back, kind of messes up the whole last 1,500 metres. It's really messy. Then I think Longo Borghini attacks early, and then that gets brought back. Amy Peters goes again for the last time, or a Bulls rider goes again for the last time. And then it was Julianne Dor launching really early because she, I think, was trying to get the jump on Lorena Veeb. She launches early. Sorry, no, I've, mis- I've mistaken that. It was Alison Jackson, I'm pretty sure, who had gone up the road and like had had the wheel let go. Weaves let the wheel go, and she's a Sunweb lead-out rider, and then... She was being chased down, I think, by, I think, Peters or Longo Borghini. As soon as they catch her, Julian Dorr starts sprinting the Bulls. Dorman sprinter, she goes into a slipstream, Alison Jackson's slipstream, who's decelerating, that's fine. She then comes back out of her slipstream to the right. She's sprint, sprinting pretty much bang on the center of the road. So you can see the white line or whatever, the crack in the, lot, in the road. She's sprinting down the middle. Lorena Veebs, who's quicker than her, in my view, and the results show that. She was a bit delayed getting there initially, maybe a little bit out of position, but kicks, gets into the slipstream of uh, Julianne Dor, and then starts to move to the left-hand side. We've still got like 75 metres to go, and she's coming quick, Lorena Veeb. She's coming real quick, and she's in like the middle third, the, the left-hand third of the road in the middle of that. And if you look at um, La Flamme Rouge, they tweeted about this, they called it, uh, <laughs> Lavar Rouge or something, L-A-V-R Rouge, what happened later. Anyway, Julianne Dor, she then starts to deviate, just like the Groenewegen deviation, the way that started wasn't didn't finish as badly, badly as that today, thankfully, but same thing, she starts to move over to the left, uh, same as Bennett won a little bit, but that didn't go all the way to the barriers. It, it was, yeah, it wasn't great, and she just kept moving Julianne Dor over to the left, and I'm like, holy fuck, is she going to properly barrier Lorena Veebs, and eventually Veebs moving up has to um, deviate all the way to the barriers. The gap did get shut to the point where she couldn't have squeezed through without making contact, and then I think Julian Dor opened it up a little bit. If you look closely, if you if you look closely at what Veebs had to do, she had to stop her cadence and putting the power down for a split second. She couldn't throw her bike as well as she could have, she would have won, I think, pretty comfortably. And, you know, when I say comfortably, I'm like, by a wheel, half a wheel, which is still comfortably the way she timed it. Uh, if she was allowed to, yeah, just sprint on the la- in the lane she was in and if Julian Dor had held her line. So when I saw it immediately, I was like, relegation, bang. La Flamme Rouge as well, we're talking um, in DM, rele- relegation has to be because she's, Julian Dor's moved, deviated from her lane, she got no, she was sprinting, she launched her sprint. We, You guys all remember the rules by now. We've been repeating it ad nauseum for like oh, months now. And she endangered another rider. And I've seen a lot of stuff about how, oh, well, there was no contact. It wasn't really that dangerous. Oh, well, Lorena Veebs didn't have to shoot, go through that gap. Making physical contact is not a precondition for endangering another rider. The rider that's endangered, just because they have really good skills, 
in avoiding an incident doesn't mean they weren't put in danger. Uh, Alaphilippe, did he really put he or she in danger? I mean, he or she, he or she just unclipped. He didn't go down. No, no harm, no foul. Why is that? Why should that be a relegation? He wasn't really in danger. He didn't die. He didn't get any suffer any injuries. It's like no. The rule is like, did they actually, you know, come cause them to maybe come like enter into a dangerous situation that they wouldn't have or have to take it? My the way I look at that, interpret it is. Do they have to take evasive action because of your deviation? And Lorena Veebs had to take significant evasive action, both moving out of the lane she had chosen when she launched her sprint, which she was entitled to stay in, had Julian Dor not deviated, and also when she had to duck her shoulder and squeeze through and sort of soft pedal in the barrier when that, that space was really closing. And this could have been a lot worse and could have ended up a lot worse. And I guarantee if... For some reason, Lorraine Aviv's had not been as good a bike handler and had clipped the barrier because she'd had to move over there and crashed. We wouldn't be seeing all these tweets about how the, the commissaires or the jury's gone soft. And all the commentators, they weren't, they didn't say anything in any language. I checked the Dutch, Italian, um, and in English, none of them mentioned it. And we're, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, immediately, I'm like, that's a relegation. 100% that's going to happen. And credit to the UCI, I think they're getting a little bit they're getting better with the consistency of it. Um, but I've ranted a lot about this race, Benji. Uh, what did the jury ultimately say, have to say? And uh, what did Julian Dor have to say afterwards? So the jury decided fairly as deserved, like you just explained, that she gets relegated in the race to the last place in the group. And what Julian Dor did on, on Twitter was respond to it. She responded to it. Firstly, look, sounding like she was accepting it, but I think it came out wrong because she ended up saying it wasn't my intention to ride Lorena Weavis into the barriers. I felt her coming and tried to intercept her. Now, try to intercept her. I think that's a, a bad translation, but the issue is that it literally says, I felt her coming and tried to intercept her. Now, you're not supposed to do that, obviously. You, you've said it already. You can't just close the door on anybody. What she was trying to say, I think, in this tweet is that she was, the Dutch translation would be, opfangen. So she's trying to catch the attack or sprint of someone else by launching at the moment where she sees the other person launch. But that's not really the case because she's sprinting. So that's why I'm so confused about the translation and how it's applied here. So I don't know what she meant with saying, try to intercept her, but... It comes out way worse than it does. She does com conclude that if the jury thinks that it's too much and disqualifies me, then I can only accept the decision. Really disappointed to end my season like this. Congrats, Team Sunweb and Lorena. So she congrats the other person, but I'm not 100% sure that the tweet is what she was supposed to tweet. No, see, I think I don't really think there's a translation issue there just because of the surrounding language, like saying, I felt her coming and tried to intercept her, and then the next sentence is, if the jury thinks it's too much, i.e. if they think me intercepting her is too much and disqualify me, then I can accept that decision. If she meant acceleration or something like that, then obviously the, the jury wouldn't think an acceleration is too much and disqualify anyone about it. So I think she meant the deviation, and that's just, that's just so odd, and I called it out on Twitter. I was like, how can you, how can you not know the rules? And like admit basically to deliberately blocking someone like that's not it's not permitted to do that in the rules and maybe they need to make the rules clearer so like in that respect or publicize them more broadly but yeah i just think she's only got herself to blame and the right the right rider won lorena babes she deserved to win because she was going to win this race had julian Dorn not deviated off the line and again no crash so you got everyone probably thinks a lot of people think we're being I'm being hysterical about it, but this this has to be a relegation. It has to be because if it's not, then next time every other rider will be like, well, I can do exactly the same thing. And then eight times out of 10, sure, there won't be a crash. But what about the two times out of 10, it really goes wrong um, and we end up in a Groenewegen-Jakobsen situation, God forbid. So. 
that's why it's a dangerous situation and it's endangering other eyes when you move over and squeeze them into the barriers like this, uh, whether there's physical contact or not. But comment down below, let you know, let us know your thoughts on it. Obviously, we're well-versed in the rule by now, uh, as is the jury probably. I think it was the Tour de France jury today at Three Darks Brugge de Pam. So maybe they learnt from the Bennett stuff if they reviewed that. Um, but a great win for Lorena Veebs, despite Sunweb. I don't really understand their tactics in the last 15Ks. Um, someone will have to explain that to me. Um, not riding tempo and also not attacking. Just, um, yeah, didn't make, didn't really make sense. But still, they got the best sprinter anyway. Lotta Kopecky, I'm not sure what, what happened to her. I think the finale was just a little bit too messy for her. But that's all from us today. Three races. I think the last Women's World Tour race of the season. We'll be back for the Giro and the Vuelta, brought to you by La Col tomorrow. They brought, well, they supplied the kit for Tratnik's W today in the Giro. Um, and we'll see you then. Ciao.